This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Dove. You use all the right skincare products for your face, but your body has been missing out. With new Dove Serum Body Wash, you can give your body the vitamin C glow it's been wanting, the hydration boost it's been craving, and the active skincare ingredients it deserves. It's time for your body care era. New Dove Serum Body Wash. Get Dove or get FOMO. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Does being surrounded by ancient trees make you happy? Hello, I'm Miranda and I'm joined by Woodsman Ray Mears. Now this is your warning to grab a pen and paper because whether you enjoy spotting wildlife in the woods this summer or want to know which wildflowers you can forage or grow to eat yourself, the best trees for your garden and even how to not get lost. This is a bumper edition, a gardener's guide to woodlands. I started by asking Ray, what is it that makes them so magical? I find it a place of spiritual warmth. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Um, when I'm in trees, I feel I'm at home. I feel comfortable. And the more there are, the bigger the woodland, the more special it is. And is it a similar feeling to being in a garden or do you think it's completely different? I think it's different. I think it's very different. Depends on the garden, obviously. Uh, I think an orchard is special. That's moving towards being a wood. But there's, um, there's a chaos in nature that is both chaotic and not, all in the same moment. And it's not of our making. The best woodlands are the woodlands that create themselves in an environmental sense and in a spiritual sense. Um, it's lovely. And I, I know what you mean when you say it's really hard to explain. There is something absolutely wonderful, isn't there, about standing in the middle of a woodland. And the more ancient, the more special. Do you feel like that as well? In an environmental sense, that is the case. We know that ancient woodlands, in the modern sense, sequester more carbon than other uh, types of woodland. But they are older, more established, more diverse and biodynamic uh, ecosystems. So they're tremendously important. And is there anything we can do in our smaller spaces like gardens to try and incorporate some of that feeling? Any sort of planting or s trees that are smaller that, that 
might replicate some of that. I think that's true. I mean, people can plant small trees. I love bonsai trees. I don't have bonsai trees, but I love bonsai trees. I think there's a respect for the tree in a strange way. There's, there's, they're beautiful. But I think all planting is good. I mean, you're creating um, habitat for insects. You're, you're providing pollen uh, for bees. So gardens are tremendously important. And of course, I think gardeners have become much more enlightened in the last 10 years. People mow their lawns later in the year, which is really important. I mean, my, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a great gardener. My, my garden's very wild and rambling. Um, but right now, you know, we've got cowslips and, uh, up in, in, in the grass and it's lovely to see them. And there's pig nut poking up and fritillary and things like that. It's just stunning. Oh, it's lovely. And for our listeners, just to let you know, we're recording in May, aren't we, at the moment? Because it's of- May, <laughs> yes. So the snowdrops have gone, the bluebells are up and they're in bloom. And uh, it's been a strange year, hasn't it? Because the blossom came very late this year. Um, but, you know, it's... Nature catches up. So in the next month, it's going to go mad. What are you looking forward to in June and July in terms of trees? Do you know what it is? It's the quality of the woods. I spend a lot of time camping in woodland. And June and July are really special time in the woods. There's a quality of light that I really like. In June, the canopy is starting to set but the shadows haven't really darkened in the woodland at that point. So in Broadleaf Woodland, there's still light caressing the trees and you can still see through the woodland. And I I think it's a special time when you can see the trunks of the trees nicely illuminated. But by the end of July, darkness falls in the woods and it becomes a, a shady place where young fallow deer can hide from the dangers of the world. Whereas, of course, right now we're about to have the roe deer give birth and uh, June is their time in the forest. So yeah, it's I, I love it. I love the seasons and how they change. And the sun being high, that's all part of the light quality in the forest. And that affects the whole mood of the forest, the humidity, the air currents, the moisture levels. It's all part of the story. So if you go for a walk through the woods today, I sound like a teddy bear. What are your sort of favourite trees and how are you identifying them? Any tips for our listeners? Gosh, I just know them. <laughs> we, I know we need to take you with us, but if we it's can't. Very, I'm very lucky because learning the uses of things is the best way to remember things. When you've used something, you never forget it. If you just try to remember the name of something, your brain struggles to remember it. And I'm sure gardeners will say, yes, if I've, I know Grisha because I've grown it, but if I just knew the name, I might forget it. So I'm lucky in that regard. Every tree seems to have its moment in the, in the calendar. And um, right now, where I live in Sussex, the hornbeam, the leaves have, are now setting and, and, and spreading out. And that's really lovely. I love to watch the young leaves as they first emerge. And I think a lot of people don't look hard enough at that and notice the beauty of these delicate young buds as they open. And, and the little spines that are contained within the leaves when, when they're emerging that, that fall off. Um, later on. It's, I love it. Absolutely. It's, it's stunning. Which trees have a lovely use or story that if you were going to plant three or four in a garden, would you choose? Obviously, it depends what soil you have and where you live. Um, but I think a birch tree is a really good tree to have. The birch tree is the pioneer of the forest. And 
birch trees were perhaps the first significant trees to grow after the last ice age. And they have the ability to grow where there isn't any shade. And they then provide shade that other trees benefit from. And so they establish the forest. And in every part of the world, there is one tree which people indigenously will consider to be the tree of life. And I think the birch tree is ours. It's so giving. You know, we can drink the sap, we can eat the leaves, we can we can make um, tea from the twigs and the leaves, we can make string from it, we can use the bark to make containers, um, we can make fire with it. I mean, the list goes on on and on and on it's got so many benefits so i think that's that's really interesting so it's good to have a birch tree to remind us that trees once were so important to us because i don't think people could really come back to britain after the ice age until there were trees and it was those birch trees would have been that they would have been birch and willow would have been tremendously significant to our earliest ancestors coming back after the ice age um I think willow is a lovely tree to have. And um, I think it's quite inspirational. It's a giving tree, it's flexible and, and it's pretty special. And they're very diverse, of course, because the, the way they hybridize. Um, but it's a gentle tree. But if you have the space, then I would encourage people to have a yew tree. To me, the yew tree is a sacred tree, it's very special. It's dark, it's evergreen. Uh, again, I think of it in the primeval forest, the wildwood of our hunter-gatherers. That tree would have stood out as a place of shelter in winter, not just from the elements, but also from dangerous animals. Because the, when you have a, a yew tree, an old yew tree that hasn't been disturbed by people, um, branches naturally fall into shade, uh, die and drop. And uh, you find a ring of dead but not decayed wood beneath them which would have made a natural defense against dangerous animals. So it would have been tremendously important again once for our ancestors. And I, I just love yew trees. I think there's, there's a magic to them. And you can grow them as a hedge, can't you, if you haven't got the space? You could grow them as a hedge. There's lots you can do with them, obviously. I mean, they're, they're very versatile. I mean, so many of our trees, I mean, in terms of gardening sense, I mean, box is a lovely tree too, isn't it? Mm. It often gets forgotten. It's a funny sort of rule between when does a tree a shrub and a shrub a t tree? It's not always, uh, say, black and white. <laughs> oh, I, I don't like the term shrub. I, I can't see the purpose of the term shrub. What, what does that mean? It, it, is a shrub a lesser tree? Now, I know there'll be people saying, oh, but a shrub is, uh, uh, you know. But to me, you know, many of the trees that we call shrubs are trees. And I see them for their potential, their value and what they give us, which elevates them in stature in my mind. As long as you don't say bush. I remember getting quite a snotty look once in a botanic garden. <laughs> Shrub, darling, shrub. <laughs> I, I think we need to be more broad-minded and not quibble over the terms that we use. The most important thing is to have a passion for the, the, the organisms themselves. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. 
it's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And you've briefly mentioned edible plants. Now, I had to do a little bit of reading on this because I wasn't sure what the laws are on foraging. But according to the Woodland Trust, you're allowed to forage for personal use, not for commercial use. And different sites do have different rules. Um, and as long as, you, because I was thinking about wildflowers, obviously, you're not allowed to pick wildflowers as I'm familiar with but when it comes to foraging as long as you don't remove the plant and you've checked the rules of the site because different sites do have different rules you can forage can't you? You can forage and you don't need to I mean the the, the common sense rules of foraging are that you don't denude any area you gather little from a from a wide area and uh, many of the indigenous communities I've, I've, I've worked with enshrine that concept and principle in, in their way of life. And they're depending on things for food. Is the summertime a difficult time to go foraging? That's a very, very good question. So the, it's quite interesting. So... In this country, in the UK, to be specific, I suppose. So, no, it's a very, it's a good question because we are very much um, focused in foraging on the um, the harvest. So, but but the harvest isn't one time of year. I know in farming it is, but in nature it's not. So, the very first uh, fruit uh, to come ripe in the forest is usually red currant in May. Uh, followed by bilberries in June. And so as you go through the year, there is this natural succession of ripening um, until we get up to the nuts and, and the fungi. So there's always something. In terms of edible plants in the forest, in the spring before the canopy sets when light falls on the forest floor, then we have a variety of things. So uh, the bittercresses, a lovely hairy and wood bittercress, are delicious. Golden saxifrage, uh, which is, is also, it's a, it's a bitter herb, but very but very nice in a salad. Of course, people would be familiar with, with ramsons. So all of these things have their place, ladies' smock. And then as the canopy sets, their time has, has passed and the celandine leaves turn yellow. Now, I wouldn't encourage people to forage celandine, but for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, uh, lesser celandine was, was tremendously important. Um, and it's when the leaves turned yellow turn yellow that they would have harvested the tiny little tubers which are about the size of one of those those stormproof matches you can use for uh for lighting fires and they would have gathered those in huge quantities but they have to be cooked before they can be eaten because they contain a toxin but throughout the year there were a succession of different foods that become available and for me the joy of of each season is seeing that the uniqueness of each season and, and what things ripen, does something ripen prematurely or later. And many of the forest fruits hide in the shadows. I mean, gooseberries growing wild are very easily missed. Any tips for finding gooseberries? Are they in particular woodlands or particular areas? You very often find them in limestone, woodland on limestone. It's like anything in woodland, you have to 
walk slowly and allow things to reveal themselves to you. Um, normally when you discover something like that in a piece of woodland, it takes you by surprise. And you may have walked past it many times without realizing it was there. It helps to learn to recognize the less familiar trees in the forest. There are certain trees that I think are really appreciated by people who love woodland. Gelder Rose is, a, is an example. Many people wouldn't recognize Gelder Rose, but I guess the, the classic is Alder Buckthorn. I mean, Alder Buckthorn can hide in the shadows. They're, they're, they're not very often numerous. Um, but if you love your trees, you, you spot it straight off. And just to say, it goes without saying, you don't eat anything unless you're 100% sure what you're picking, Of course. Right? You, have to be very, you do have to be very careful. And um, in terms of foraging, I'm, I'm all in favour of people enjoying nature uh, in that way. But I do notice that um, since it's become a thing on, on uh, social media and the internet, there are sites encouraging people to eat things which are perhaps not even edible. It's one of the problems with, with social media is that people want to stand out and be different from everybody else. And so sometimes they will make rec recommendations which are unwise. What would you recommend for people wanting to get into foraging? Is there a good place to look for reference? I think the best thing is to go out with a with a well-recognised well forager and uh, don't try to learn it all at once. You, you do a few things at a time and go very slowly and get to know things extremely well. I mean, I think that's that's the key. I mean, one of the great problems with fungi, um, when people poison themselves with fungi, it's normally always a fungus that's been uh, misidentified as the chanterelle. And when you look into what happened, normally that person has been out with people who can correctly identify chanterelle. But when they are shown a chanterelle, they don't pay carefully enough attention and then make the mistake of eating a, a webcap, uh, a Cortinaria species, which are very dangerous by, by in error. And actually, to a mycologist, they're massively different. If you don't look carefully, you can you can miss the key features. It's complicated. What would be one of those key features? And please don't use this as a guide for your mushrooms, but just out of interest, what would be something to remember? Well, for Chanterelle, you've, you've got an apricot scent to start with. And uh, the gills look like, uh, they look, they're very rounded and less blade-like and they run down the stem. And the, and the stem breaks in a certain way. When you, when you snap it, it's not, it's not, it's a, it's a subtle thing. It's, it doesn't, it's not fibrous and stringy when you break it. Of course, where they grow as well. So, you, but, but the only way to learn fungi, in truth, is to go out with a mycologist. Don't try and use an app. Don't even try to use a book because um, scent and taste are important things for identifying fungi. And until and they're very subjective. So when you go out with a mycologist and they say, this fungus tastes of radish or this one tastes of cucumber or this one smells of oil from a motor garage and you smell it, you taste it in their company, then you can say, I, it doesn't taste like that to me, but I know what you mean. And then you, you're able to gauge your own uh, appreciation of those very subtle senses. And I think doing it, you remember better, don't you? It's something in the brain, sort of it's an action. So the, the memory, physical memories there. I love listening to you talking about the stems of mushrooms, the way they break and the roundness of the gills of the mushrooms. To me, 
those subtleties are what makes woodlands very magical. It's all those tiny differences, all the detail, I think. You know, it's an, a, a huge scale, but those lovely little differences that sort of celebrate the seasonality. I mean, do, do you think that's something that you enjoy in a woodland? Yeah, to me, if you take an acre of grassland or an acre of woodland, the biodiversity in the woodland is massive because trees are like the alveoli of our lungs. The, the surface area and the, the habitat opportunities are massive, and um, it, you're always surprised. And, and you know, and and I look at a forest and I feel that um, it's like an apartment block. There's an apartment for for different species there. And some of them are seasonal. So in May, you, we get the nightingales come back and there's a space for them. And then a little later, we get the spotted flycatchers. And um, they each have their space. And I look forward to seeing these visitors. The spotted flycatchers are, are, are one of, that's my favourite bird. And um, if you're camping in the woods, uh, as the summer is maturing, you wake up one morning and they've gone. It's like they know there's a party somewhere else. They're early departers <laughs> and you feel like you've been left behind. Do they have a call? Do you have any ways of remembering? I always remember a little bit of butter and a bit of cheese. for Oh, for the yellow <laughs> <one> hammer. Of... <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure I've got that completely wrong. But what should we be listening to in the summer to, to listen out for a... In the summer, you've got everything. It's very difficult because you've got this cacophony. <laughs> the easiest time to, to learn birdsong is in the spring when things return and you hear something new and then to seek it out with your eyes and, and to see it. But the flycatchers, it's the way they fly. They, they, they'll, 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 start, they'll sit on a perch and then they'll dart up to catch a fly and then return to the perch. And that's a very distinctive behaviour. And they very much like to be in the uh, amongst the boughs of mature oak trees. And so this summer, are there any other wildlife you're looking forward to see as you take your strolls through these oh, deep, yes, dark woods? Definitely. So in June, uh, I look forward to seeing the tracks of newborn fallow deer. That's really exciting to see the, the tiniest tracks of newborn deer. And if you're very, very quiet, uh, when, when those, the mothers uh, feel confident, confident enough to go out and, and graze in the open with their young beside them, if you're very quiet and you're able to get close, then you'll hear the call, uh, the gentlest calls between the baby deer and their mums. It's, the, 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 it's just the most wonderful thing to, to hear the does and the fawns communicating in that way. And it's a subtle sound that's lost, just as is the, the mating call of a roe doe in the woods. You get this, this tiny little squeak that most people would never hear. It's, it's a discreet sound in the forest, but of tremendous importance because it, it, you know, it's the most exciting time in the year uh, for roe deer. And, and learning to listen out for that, see if I can make the sound, is a... <coughs> like that, that sort of sound. And um, it's so delicate. And I always know when I'm talking to a, a, a real woodsman or woods, a woodswoman, it, when you see their eyes light up because they've heard that same sound uh, at the same moment. And is that the young making the call or they both make the same sound back it's, and forth? It, that's the doe calling for a mate. And um, mature bucks will come running to that sound. <laughs> so it sounds very sweet, but actually it's, hey guys. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that. And it's, it's a tremendously exciting time of year. Um, to see this and the, these natural cycles. It's, it's, it's primal and it's, it's very special. And, you know, 
I mean, it, to me, it's a reminder that, you know, we have a very short period uh, alive on, on the earth. We're lucky we have 80 summers. And it's no time at all to learn about nature. Not at all. And, and this is a glory of a podcast that I can ask you about these sounds and we can actually share them. Are there any other little noises to listen out for as we... Well, yeah, and of course, then, as I mean, with the deer, as the fallow, when the fallow come into the, into rut in, in October, you, you'll get the belching sound they made. <laughs> You may hear that at night and uh, in the woodland. A lot of people are surprised, but they're not sure what that sound is. And um, again, it's a very exciting time. Uh, in, in woodland where there's little disturbance for the deer, you'll hear that in daytime as well. Oh, it's lovely. And you mentioned the, the tracks is it of, of the fowl, of the, of the young deer. What sort of shape am, are we looking for? Well, when you, look at, when you look at deer tracks, the key thing to look at is the shape, the outside curvature of the, the cloven hoof. That's the key thing. And each of the, the species have a different shape. So fallow deer is kind of straight-sided and then curves in quite acutely towards its tip. Whereas uh, for a roe deer, it curves all, almost all of the way like a, like a bullet. And uh, with experience, you can, you can tell that at a glance. So we've had our lovely wander through the woods and we've found ourselves back home. And in the garden, we want to grow some of those plants that have edible flowers. Can you recommend flowers that we can grow in most gardens? I know as you're, you're going to mention soil types and all these things, as you're quite right. Yeah, but- I mean, I'm not going to try and mention that because your, your, your listeners <laughs> are, are they're much more knowledgeable about that than I am. <laughs> But some of the popular ones that are particularly useful. Well, I mean, sorrel is, you know, in the woods we have wood sorrel and there are many sorrels you can grow. And the leaves of the sorrel taste of apple apple peel. And a few, just a few in, a, in salad, really lift it. I think the, 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 one of the nicest ways to use edible plants is to use them very, very subtly um, within a salad. Not, not to, to look for the bulk, but for the nuance. And um, bittercress is probably a weed that most of your gardeners don't want to see growing in their flower pots. <laughs> but to me, that's one of our very best wild plants. And when it starts to come into flower, if you trim the flowers away, it will continue to grow, but it doesn't flower. Not flowering reduces the bitterness of the plant. So that's really good. Another plant that people would, well, is often considered a weed is, of course, fat hen. Any of the kinopods, so uh, good king henry um, and goosefoot, these are wonderful. And the only reason they're not sold in greengrocers, I suspect, is that they wilt as soon as you as you, as soon as you trim them. Um, but they're as good as spinach. And one of the ways that I really like to use those is to uh, add those to an omelette. And it's absolutely delicious and very, very good for you as well. Incredibly nutritious. The obvious plant to have in any garden is an area where you have nettles, stinging nettles. Try to have nettles growing in a shady place. They, they, they're, they're very good habitat for a range of uh, microfauna, which will help protect your plants. And every garden should have a wild patch. Nettle, people know about nettle tea, but nettle soup is wonderful. And what you're looking for are nettles that have no purple or reddish tinge to the stem. Whenever a plant grows, uh, a lot of plants that grow in 
sunlight, direct sunlight, protect themselves by developing this pigment in the in the stems, which causes bitterness, a very strong bitterness in nettles. So having really green nettles, and again, if you keep trimming them back, they will be less bitter. And it's the topmost buds that you use. If you take those and you blanch them very with a, with a small amount of boiling water, that removes the stings. Uh, then uh, strain them, but retain the liquid and chop them up. Use that liquid as the base for a stock. You could then use vegetable stock or a, or, 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 or a meat stock, whichever you prefer, and recombine the uh, chopped nettles into that and, and then thicken it with some creme fraiche. You, uh, th that is a beautiful soup. Once you've seasoned it and serve it with a crusty homemade roll, you, you really can't go far wrong. I think I've made stingy nettle risotto once with, a <laughs> that <would be> <laughs> with some friends. It, They're so yes, but undervalued. I, I did get stung, so Ray, and it's embarrassing to admit this, but any tips for n before the blanching, because you've still got to touch them before then, how, how can we help avoid getting stung? Why don't get stung? It's how you handle them. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. <laughs> But if you you get used to handling nettles, and if you handle them boldly in the right way, it's if you're tentative, then you seem to get stung more. But of course, just put some gloves on. It's, it's straightforward. I think I may have stung my tongue, but that's a blanching. That's properly blanching. If do you, you think? blanch them, then you won't sting your tongue. At all. Okay. In fact, you can take a nettle, <laughs> you can take a mature nettle, and you can just wilt it in the flames of a fire, of a campfire, and then bite off the top, and you don't get stung. And it's delicious and very filling as well. Oh, brilliant. This is fantastic because these are plants that we want to be growing for wildlife and we want to be thinking, as you say, for having patches of our garden. Not necessarily the whole garden, but areas that do no, have wildflowers no, growing. No, yeah? exactly, yeah. It's always good to have a little wild spot in a garden. I think that's tremendously important. And, um, I mean, what's the point of having a garden if you don't also enjoy the wildlife that it brings? I know that you like leaf tea. I'm, I'm quite keen to make some leaf tea. Are there any leaves in the summer we can pick? And should they be the young ones that we're looking for? Yeah, it's always best to use uh, the, the young leaves for teas. And then you can either use them fresh or you can dry them. Best to dry uh, teas in the shade. Some people hang them up in a dark place and then store them in uh, paper bags. Um, there are so many different teas that we can make. I mean, raspberry leaf tea is delicious. Wild thyme, wood mint, the, the, you know, the, the list is almost endless of what teas we can make. But it's nice if you sweeten them with a tiny drop of heather honey. I think it's just lovely. Oh, <laughs> do you keep bees? No, I wish I did. I think bees are wonderful. They're the most magical. I mean, of course, the gardener's best friend. And um, that was a lovely thing in the early part of lockdown, that first period in lockdown. The bees went crazy, didn't they? It was very special. Oh, absolutely. So enjoying our garden, let's wander back out to the woods. And just to indulge me, it's getting later into the summer. I remember getting lost once in a National Trust property in the woods. You know, I think as an urbanite, you can forget how easy it is when it gets dark. You can really quite quickly lose your sense, can't you? Um, how do we find our way out? My phone has died. I don't know where I am. Any top tips? Well, that's a really good question. And I, I'll, you know, if we if we were to go for a walk in any of the large woodland parks in Britain on a bank holiday, it, we would, it would only take us five minutes to find people who are lost. 
Very often they have a map and compass with them as well. There, there are a couple of things you have to do. When, whenever you go into woodland, firstly, know where you set off from. I know it sounds obvious, but I know from experience that many, many times people don't remember the name of the car park they arrived at. You know, they were stuck in traffic while they got there. The children in the car were champing at the bit. And they, they get there and there's this, this relief that we've eventually arrived and everyone sort of bomb bursts into the forest. And of course, 100 metres into the forest, you can't see the car park anymore. So first of all, know where you're set off from. And, and then secondly, understand the boundaries of the area you're walking in. Is it bounded by a fence, a stream, a road or a railway line? And establish in which direction these boundaries are and which of them would be the uh, easiest boundary to locate and follow back to the, your car park or the safest to follow back to your car park. And if you've got children with you, make a, ma a map on the ground as a fun thing to do and explain, look, this is where we are, this is what's to the east of us, the north, the south, the west, and so on. And if you get lost, this is what you should do. And then you need a means of finding direction. Now, you know, your phone might do that. You're, you, you might have a compass with you. But if you don't, you can look at the trees themselves. And trees are very reliable indicators of direction because they, they reach out every day for sunlight to the south. And so you get larger, um, more growth, larger growth, and more horizontal branches on the south side of trees. And the, the, on the north side, the branches will try to go up or around the trunk to reach the light. It's not to say there can't be exceptions to that. If, if a tree is growing in shade, it may be forced to reach north. But if you take um, a sample from many trees, particularly the tall trees that have access to open space above the canopy, pine trees, for example, you have a uh, nature's most wonderful compass available to you and then you then you know which way is south and you can work your way back from there as long as you remember if you need to go south or north <laughs> exactly you have to know that in the first instance <laughs> yeah. and, and what what we do in you know in woodland here in that sense i do exactly the same if i'm traveling in the rainforest or the boreal forest just on a much larger scale and there's some lovely sort of woodland craft. Is there any sort of woodland craft we might be able to do maybe with family in the gardens using material that you find in woods, but we might also be able to find in gardens? I'm thinking like clematis. I think I read something about using clematis to make string. I was very impressed. The, the clematis sheds its bark naturally. You don't want to go playing with the juice of clematis because it, will, it can cause stinging and... Uh, uh, in fact, the juice from the flowers used to be used to treat uh, um, migraines. It, it gives a, 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 a swift uh, relief for that, but it's toxic, so it's not something you should really do. But the, but the, the bark that sheds naturally from clematis can be turned into rope or, or string if you, if you twist it together in the right way. Equally, the, the bark from willow, if you've trimmed any willow branches in your garden, you can take the bark off and use that instead of garden twine to tie up your, your, your plants with. And um, I'm all in favour of that. I think we reach too readily for, for, for string. Nature provides so many opportunities. I mean, the classic was hazel. People would grow hazel for exactly that purpose. Hazel isn't the most long-lasting. It will rot and become brittle. Um, uh, uh, alder is more in, more durable, um, or sweet chestnut if you can get get that. So yeah, each tree has its own properties. If you were going to gift someone 
plant for their garden, um, what what would it be? Gosh, that's a really difficult question. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know, I met a young boy yesterday who asked me how he could care for his oak sapling. Isn't that lovely? So, so maybe a, a, an oak sapling would be lovely. <laughs> it's, and it's planting for the future, isn't it? Do you think that's important that we're not just thinking about the next few years we are planting beyond ourselves? We should all be planting for the future. And Britain has the least woodland of any European country. And um, we, we should work much harder to restore our woodlands, not just by planting, but allowing nature to plant itself. The good news is that we are planting and regenerating woodland faster than any of the other countries, but we've got a long way to go. And as gardeners, what can we do to help British woodlands? Well, you're already doing it. Gardeners are fantastic. I mean, you're creating habitat for things. And um, a couple of years ago, I was involved in a, in a PR exercise where we, for one day, rewilded Trafalgar Square. We brought 3,000 plants into Trafalgar Square. And at six o'clock in the morning, I saw a bee land on one of those flowers. And it just shows you the power of, of nature in terms of a regenerative sense. And I didn't realise how, how profound that experience was. And by the end of the day, it was a, a real happening. There were hundreds of people enjoying that tiny green space. And of course, that's exactly what gardeners do. Um, I think the, the importance of gardens is so easily misunderstood. And um, you're creating habitat, you're creating biodiversity. And that's the most important thing of all. If there's one thing I've learned uh, about nature is that we should act wherever possible to increase and to support biodiversity. I do think the world is becoming more enlightened. I think, you know, city planners are, are you know, th things are improving, but there's still so much more work to be done, as always. Conservation never ends. It's like holding on to um, a handful of sand. Almost the more tightly you squeeze the sand, the more you lose through the the, the gaps between your fingers. So in terms of conservation, we must always be adding new sand to our hand. It's a, it's a job that will never be finished. And for those with children or who have friends with children or, you know, have children around, what trees would be good to plant for swings and tree houses? Is this, is this an odd question? You know, if you were hoping to that, it's a good solid tree that might grow quickly that be useful for playing with and encouraging kids outside what would you recommend i don't think any of the trees will grow fast enough they will they will grow much slower than your children um <laughs> but if you have <laughs> if you have trees in your garden uh oak is a very good choice for a swing because the the, the, the branches are so strong they're like they're like rs you know rsj is they're like iron um and 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 tree houses the same. I'm, I'm, yeah, you have to make best use of what you've got. Uh, you have to be careful of some some trees. Beech trees are notorious for dropping their branches, so you never camp underneath a beech tree. You don't know when it'll drop a branch. And if you had twenty four hours left on this planet, which woodland would you go to? Oh, ancient oak woodland. There's nothing. Any particular special. one? Any particular? I couldn't favorite? say because everyone would go there. <laughs> yes. The <laughs> Very smart answer. Very smart answer. The worst, but why? the worst thing that can happen. You know, we 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 can love trees to death. One of the things trees really don't like is trampling around their base because it compresses the soil and interferes with their roots. So um, it's very important when you you visit 
places to tread very lightly. And some of uh, those parts of Britain where we have magnificent trees, people do tread too often and, uh, and too heavily around them. And ancient oaks, is that to do with them being hundreds of years old? Is that a shape thing? What, what, what draws you to ancient it's the, oaks? It's the ecosystem. Each species of tree has its own biological it is its own biological ecosystem. There are specific uh, species of insects, fungi, and so on that are associated with those trees. And the oak is one of the most giving and supportive of all trees. And interestingly, um, you know, human blood pressure drops better in oak woodland than in coniferous woodland. They're more beneficial for us. So there's, a, there's some feeling that we have for trees. And that's not just because Christmas is really stressful. <laughs> it's not because Christmas is really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I've got to pick a blooming Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> so we're having a lovely walk in the summer through the woods and I think, oh my goodness, I've got Ray with me. What what are we going to cook? We're camping. What are we going to grab for and cook that's around us? What from the wild? Mm. Well, I mean, if it's late in the uh, in the summer, we might look for um, a crab apple and and toast that over some some, some the fires. Or even if we have our eyes open, we might find a pear growing in the wild. There are places where there used to be cottages where the trees are still there and, and there's nothing more magical. Sometimes these pears now are only diminutive in size, you know, they're regressing, but they're absolutely delicious. And I think that's like finding pure treasure. And if not that, then obviously some of our edible fungi, I have a passion for fungi and um, they're truly magnificent. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app.